Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears. Multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thank you for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. My name is Rob Snow White, and this is the 284th episode featuring Matt Smythe. You may know him from his nom de plume of Fishing Poet. I've known Matt for several years through Project Healing Waters and bumping into him at the fly fishing shows. You may have heard him briefly before at some of those Edison and Somerset fly fishing shows in the past. Well, this is an entire episode with just Matt as he describes Alaska and its importance to those that live there and those like him that visit. This episode is dedicated to Ryan Fitzpatrick. First, we're going to hear from TU Alaska's Kayla Royce, who's been on this show before. She's going to discuss the current status of the fate of the roadless rule in the Tongass. Then Matt tells us what makes Alaska so special. His description of a specific patch of wildflowers reminded me of the opening of the poem Auguries of Innocence by William Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. I also want to remind you that recent podcast guests Luke and Dan are now on their second leg of their 50 nifty fish in 50 states. We'll check in with them next week. Let's go to Alaska now with Matt Smythe. Hey everyone, this is Kayla from Trout Unlimited's America Salmon Forest Campaign. I was born and raised in Juneau, Alaska, and I'm an avid fly angler, hunter, and outdoor enthusiast. Having spent most of my life outside, I learned how important it is to speak up for the things that you care so deeply about. And for me, the Tongass National Forest is one of those things. The Tongass National Forest is in Southeast Alaska, and it's the largest national forest in the United States at a whopping 17 million acres. And for me, the recreation opportunities are endless. 
If you're an angler throughout the year, you can search out the elusive steelhead in small creeks. You can swing flies for all five species of Pacific salmon. You can catch cutthroat trout, dolly varden, rainbow trout, grayling, brook trout, the list goes on. The Tongass is wild, and you can often wander the woods all day and never see another soul. The area is home to some of the healthiest fish and wildlife areas, in part due to the national roadless rule. So, what is the roadless rule? The roadless rule prohibits commercial logging and new logging roads on 58.5 million acres of inventoried roadless areas nationwide. Within the Tongass, many of the most important fish and wildlife areas, including the Tongass 77, are in inventoried roadless areas. And if you're wondering, the Tongass 77 are the most prolific salmon, trout, and wildlife areas and watersheds in the Tongass National Forest. And within these areas, Trout Unlimited has been working hard to conserve them due to their high fish production for the forest. So currently, the Forest Service recommended a full exemption to the roadless rule in the Tongass. Now, this would undo protections for 9.2 million acres of old-growth forests, and it could open up these wild areas of the forest to industrial-scale old-growth logging, which is really bad for fish and wildlife. Despite 96% of all public comments opposed to changing the roadless rule in Alaska, the repeal is moving forward. So if you value public lands, wild salmon, trout, healthy wildlife habitat, and recreation that sustains, you'll want to pay attention. The roadless rule in Alaska's national forest could be overturned in less than 30 days, putting places that myself as an angler, as a hunter, and as an outdoor recreationalist hold most dear. To learn more and to speak up for fish and wildlife, visit americansalmonforest.org and visit the Take Action page. All right, so we've got Matt Smythe with us. How's it going, man? Fantastic, fantastic. We're getting into getting into fall, so my favorite time of year. So things are good. Yeah, I do have a, a hoodie and a little knit cap on at the moment. It's getting a little chilly down here. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. I'm still in flip flops, though. I won't. I won't give those up until the snow's at least ankle deep. So. Yeah, I've seen you at a lot of the shows in flip flops, and I, I can't do that. Usually October, <laughs> early October is when I switch over. Right. Right on. Yeah, man. So we're going to talk Alaska today. Absolutely. So where are you in New York right now? I'm in the Finger Lakes. So we are about halfway between Syracuse and Buffalo. And uh, about half an hour south of Rochester um, from this area, from Canandaigua, which is one of the 11 Finger Lakes. So, uh, I don't know, maybe five hours from New York City, roughly. All right. How, so, how far are you from Alaska? <laughs> a lot farther. <laughs> at least at least two, uh, two layovers. So, tell us, how did you get into first going to Alaska and, and what is it that brings you back? I always look forward to your Instagram stories and pictures. Well, the so I've been I've been twice now. I haven't I haven't haven't gotten quite to the every year level. But uh, the first time that I went, I went to Juneau, and I went with a group of uh, writers, editors, photographers, and some folks from Trout Unlimited. We were going up to spend some time in the Tongass. Um, the Tongass National Forest is, I think there's, I'm, I'm trying to remember, it's like, I think it's 77 million acres that it's temperate rainforest. And it's, it, it's a, it's a pretty amazing place from that standpoint to have a rainforest in Southeast Alaska. They were at the time, the 
fighting against there was logging interests mining interests different things along that line they were they were really working to uh to fight for the salmon since salmon is the primary the primary economic driver uh, in that area and they were also were fighting against um or fighting to preserve the roadless rule which is now there there's been the final Im- environmental impact statement that just came out that says that they're actually going to roll it back where they want to roll it back, which means it's going to jeopardize just an immense amount of forest in the Tongass to be able to open roads for, for logging and, and other extractive, uh, extractive activities. So, but I had gone up, that was in 2018 and we got to, we got to see the commercial fishery there and how they their operations once the boats come in we got to go and 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 fly fish as well and the the place i'd i'd said it when when i'd gone up the first time it's a place where if you step off the pavement you know in in any given place you step off the pavement into the woods and you feel like you you would turn around and you wouldn't know where the hell you were. It's just it's so it's so big, and that was that was what 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 struck me the most is is just the the amount of wilderness that there is up there and that that still exists. I mean, for me, I'm you know a kid from upstate New York. We have the Adirondack Park, which is which is absolutely you know it's a tremendous it's such a gem. But when you, it's it's hard to imagine when you're you know you're standing on top of Mount Marcy or Algonquin or any of the other high peaks. It, it's hard to believe that there's something not just bigger, but that would make these you know these peaks look really like sort of rolling foothills <laughs> by comparison. So I was. I was really, really struck by that when I got out there. I, I, there's no way to prepare for it necessarily. So, but that first trip, that was, I'd been, you know, as a kid, you hear about Alaska, you hear about the Yukon and the, you know, just that sort of subsistence living. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's hard living, right? You gotta, you gotta work and, and really pay attention and, uh, pay attention to the land itself in order to be able to live sort of, I guess, in, in concert with it. And it was always just fascinating to me. So being able to get up to Juno was, was just a, you know, it was a, a dream come true. Now flash forward to this year. And we decided, I decided to take uh, the older of my two boys and to head up to Bristol Bay. There's, a handful of reasons for wanting to go. I mean, obviously fishing is, is one big one, but I've been, I've been doing for the last three years. Anyway, I've been actively working with a number of other organizations and people on trying to fight against Pebble Mine uh, in Bristol Bay. I, I'll, I'm not going to, I don't want to go too far into it because I, I, I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, Alaska itself. So, sure. so we decided to go up. I wanted to see Bristol Bay before God forbid something, the ball bounces the wrong way. 
and now this immense mine is going to be dug in the headwaters of what is the largest sockeye salmon run in North America. I think even in one of the largest in the world. And I wanted, I wanted to see the place that I've heard so much about that um, I've been signing petitions and sending letters and organizing, you know, massive industry fundraisers just to, to, to help the people that are fighting, you know, on the front lines to help keep them going, you know, but then I also, this was my, you know, my son graduated high school and I wanted to, I wanted to take him on a meaningful trip. He, he's known about Alaska his entire life because he's listened to me talk about Alaska and, you know, places West. So for him, it was, it was an opportunity for him to also see what, you know, his dad has been rambling on about all these years. So that for, for me, it's, it, again, it's Alaska's, it's, it's a special place. It, it holds meaning because there's, I don't know, it sort of embodies the, 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 the wilderness spirit that we kind of have at our core, you know, the out, those that are, that are into the outdoors, whether it's hunting or fishing or hiking, you know, their wilderness is something that is, it, it's just so much bigger than ourselves. And to be able to, to step foot, you know, onto the tundra where you're, you're literally, you're looking at mountains and the guide says, Oh yeah, that's 45 miles away. And you know, you're trying to, you're trying to get, get context with this because the mountains are Baltimore for me. (laughs) They, they, the, the mountains look so gigantic, but they're 45 miles away, you know, same with Denali and, and all those it's, you, you struggle to grasp just how large, uh, how large the place is. And knowing that there's impending danger with Pebble Mine, did it almost feel like there was a rush to go see a dying relative to, you know, get your last goodbye before it's too late? There, there is, there definitely, there was, there was that element. And, I, I'm not, I'm sort of the eternal optimist that the fight, you know, we will, that we'll win this fight, that there's no way that this can, this can happen. So for me, it was, it, it did have that sort of, I want to see it before it goes away, but I also wanted to see it because I felt like I needed to sort of restore restore i guess just the the idea of what it is that i'm fighting for to see it so that now i've got it in my i have it in you know i I can smell it i can see it i can touch it i can just i can i can be there and now when i when i talk about it now i'm talking about it from a firsthand perspective you know and it's not it's not nearly as firsthand as the folks that are from up there that you know, that they do make their living up there, you know, the indigenous uh, cultures and native Alaskans, they're just, you know, that if it goes away, their livelihood goes away, just it's gone and there's not going to be jobs for, you know, for all them. So it's, 
so it, it was it was part to to get that that perspective and to be able to see it firsthand part to be able to to see it before it goes away and then it, it also from a you know just from an out an outdoorsman standpoint i wanted to be able to go and to see the abundance that you know that is there from a wildlife and fish standpoint to see those just thousands and thousands of sockeye in the rivers to see the bear to you know hopefully see moose or wolf or different things and just and and to be able to just be among all of that you know we when we got back and i was posting some pictures and and what have you i posted a one picture of one of the bears that we saw and it was, you know, it was eating a, a sockeye and my son calls me and he says, dad, we, we saw that. Like we, that we took that picture. We saw that we were there, you know, and it's that sort of aha moment that, you know, you, we all know that, you know, brown bear exists and there's these big, these rivers full of salmon and different things like that, but you don't, you don't really get to sort of put your hands around it or to, to just even stand there and to just be in awe for however long you want to be in awe. It, it, it's, it's a trip that, that I, I, you know, I'll tell anybody that is thinking about it, that you definitely, you have to go and experience it. And it's, it's not a difficult trip. There are ways that you can, you know, you can get as, as technical and backcountry and, and what have you as you want, but access to be able to get in and to fish, to be able to, you know, to, to see the tundra and to see the mountains and everything. It's, it is, it's very, very reasonable to, to get to. So. You went up in an, was it a small plane? Uh, yeah, once we, we flew into, so it, to get there, I flew right, I flew right out of, uh, Rochester here in New York and we had two layovers, one in Detroit, uh, one in Seattle. And then from there caught a flight to Anchorage from Anchorage, you get on a smaller flight and we flew to King Salmon, which is Southwest. Uh, and that's on the, the Naknek river, which is the it that river flows into Bristol Bay and it's a just this beautiful big river that it's when we were there the all the silver salmon were starting to push to push in the cohos which you know being from up here it's there's the 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 vernacular we have silver salmon in Lake Ontario we call them coho primarily and obviously they're they're just freshwater, but but yeah, the silvers were silvers were pushing in. The sockeye were already up into the creeks and pushed way up in to spawn. The kings were pushed up in and all bright red, and we're getting ready to get up in their spawning uh, areas. A lot of the rainbows, the wild wild these trophy giant rainbow and some steelhead in some places, but the rainbow are starting to they're starting to push in. They just gorge on eggs. 
and that's it. They're they're in there eating flesh. My goodness. They're eating eggs, and so when you're you know when when we were fishing. We went to Brooks Camp one day, and that's the Fish and Wildlife Service has, a, has an actual camp there. And they, so people can go and stay, right? But you go through this whole bear orientation. So you could stay in these cabins, and they've got like a mess hall and different things like that. But then there's also day trips that just come in, and you have to store your food in a cache, and you have to eat within this sort of electrified area. Uh, if you see a bear, you have to make sure that you back off. You have to stay 50 yards away from them. There's all these different things that you have to, you have to bear in mind. And no it, pun intended. Right. Yeah. <laughs> how big is that bear for someone that's never encountered a bear really in their life? How huge are they? Oh man. So we saw, we saw a bear that ranged in size Obviously, the younger ones are, they're not as big, but they're roughly, you know, you get them around 400 pounds. We saw a pair of siblings that were wrestling in the river below us, and it was actually our, our guide. We fished with Frigate, uh, Frigate at, uh, Adventure Travel. They're, it's Kate and Justin Crump are the owners of that, and we were out with Justin, and, and he says, you know, this is really, this is a, it's a rare sight. Because at Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The brown bear are very solitaire, so they tend to not be around other bear, and except for say moms and their cubs. But once the the cubs get old enough and they get out on their own, they start to be very solitary as well. So to see this time of year bring back all these bear to the river, and for these what we're presuming were siblings to find each other again. And to actually be paddling around and, you know, wrestling in the river, it was, it, you can't help but just reel your line in, stop and just watch for as long as they're going to be farting around down there. And so, and those were small ones, like the, you know, a pair of 400 pounders, but they get up to uh, generally like, I think some of the bigger, sure bear get up to like 900 pounds. Uh, we saw some that were most definitely pushing a thousand pounds. They were absolutely gorged, fat, stuffed sausages on uh, on sockeye, and we got to see them up at uh, Brooks Falls. That's Brooks Falls is sort of the that this is the epitome of when people think of bears sitting in waterfalls and the salmon jumping up and they're grabbing them out of the air and, and all that, that's Brooks falls. There was one bear sitting on top of the falls on this small rock outcropping and he had blocked the water and the water's rushing around him. There's another one in the hole below him. There's two on the far side. There's one that's lounging on a boulder. 
another one that's walking up and there's just fish there's sockeye everywhere and the fish are jumping up the falls the one that's in the whirlpool at the bottom is moving around and the fish are spooking and trying to jump the falls the one that's on the falls is grabbing them or you know trying to to bat them to a spot where he can grab them and you just sit and stare at this is this is nature this is firsthand this isn't a zoo it's not you know it's not on Nat Geo it's right right there when we were further we were further downstream from the the uh, falls we would have to back up across the river you know one of these big males would come lumbering down the shoreline and he's just working his way downstream and you back up across and let him go through walk back up and get back into the area for fishing and then another one comes down and you know you just have to kind of keep your head on a swivel but they're they're amazing animals they're as as big as you would dream they would be but seeing them just it i don't know there's something that just it's like the connection that little the the connection closes and you're like damn, I didn't even imagine that big, you know. I didn't imagine that big was going to be that big, so. What does it smell like with giant bears around and salmon by the millions, probably rotten salmon on the side? Does this just smell like wild nature? Surprisingly, it's not, You there's not, it doesn't smell bad. It doesn't smell like anything but just, it just smells clean. You know, you you smell the trees and the water is just crystal clear and fresh. There are some spots you get, you know, when you're walking, whether it's you know, through the tall grass or whatever, and you're work, working down at a shore, you know, there are spots that, you know, it gets a little, it might get a little ripe because they've grabbed several fish and they're over there eating or they have eaten and there's just, you know, whatever that's left of the carcass is sitting there. But, but generally, it it's it, it smells. I don't know. It just smells untouched. You know, it's sort of like when you go when you get far enough away from the city and you can actually see the stars because there's no there's no light pollution. Or if you get far enough away when you you don't hear the sound of any sort of traffic or planes or anything like that. And there's just this, this fantastic silence that like my, we were out the first morning, we went up, up the river and we're fishing for pike on the lake. We had just gotten there, settled in, shut off the engine. We're getting the rods situated. And my son Cam was standing on the bow and he said, it's so quiet, it almost feels disrespectful to talk. It's like that. It's almost a spiritual quiet. You know? That's profound. And, and, and then, likewise, you look at the sky. He says, I can't believe how big the sky is even. He says, you know, back home, you look up and, okay, there's the sky. You've got trees and everything. You know, it really doesn't matter where you are. You can be out in the country. Still, you look up and the sky is just right there. Well, in Alaska, he says, you look up and then you got to look left. 
you got to look further. And same with Bright. He says, you just keep looking and there's just more and more and more sky. And that, you know, to me, to see him, you know, this 17-year-old kid, I've been lucky enough to be out, you know, in Montana and Colorado. And I've seen, I've seen mountains and I've seen, you know, big when the, the landscape gets gets big but this was his first time seeing it and I had to stop and put myself back in his shoes to remember like how awe-inspiring it was when you know when I saw the sawtooth range in, in Idaho for the first time as the sun was coming up on you know, it, it, there's there's these moments that I had to remember and had to put myself back into to not so much to relate, but to celebrate it with him, you know, to have that feeling in my gut and that sort of awakening that 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 he was feeling. And that's, you know, that's a that's a special thing. And it's something that, you know, I really I hope that that I don't ever sort of take for granted and I know that he won't either. He's just of that of that mind that these you know these experiences are. This is this is the world, you know. It's something that I didn't I didn't necessarily have growing up. It was always available, but you know my family didn't really travel, so I didn't I didn't realize how big and amazing the world was until I got older and started you know in the military and what have you. But but he's he's always heard stories and now he's got some of the experience that I have. Now he has it for himself. And I think it just, you know, it's going to open floodgates. Maybe there'll be a third generation one day, all three of you go. <laughs> That'd be all right. Yeah. I'd be, I'd just be happy to get my, uh, my daughter and my other son up there too. You know, my youngest, I didn't, he's, he's a sophomore in high school. He's going to have two years with, out any siblings at the house and he's going to get to travel plenty. So he, he got to, That's he got cool. to sit this one out. Yeah. Were you able to see the whole salmon forest sort of come to fruition? The bears eating. They said there's a smell up in the grass where all the nutrients from the salmon are brought out into the woods and then the wood contributes to the salmon. And then it's just a giant cycle. It, it, that's, it, that's absolutely what it is. You feel as though you're, I mean, you're, you're, you're witnessing this amazing cycle. It's all happening. It's just all happening around you. I mean, I, being in upstate New York, in Western New York, you know, we have our, the Lake Ontario tributaries where the, the salmon push in from Lake Ontario and then the Browns and steelhead and what have you. And there's carcasses everywhere. There are animals that, that feed on them. But, and they're, they do go back into the soil. They're, you know, nutrients in the water and what have you. But the, when you look at just the, the sheer numbers and how big the place is, it's just, it's to scale, right? Like what I see back home, there's scale that up by, you know, a thousand times you have that much land and you have that many more animals and the size of the animals because they have so much room and so much that they can feed on i mean in katmai national park alone when the salmon are running and they're put they're pushed up 
there are 43,000 brown bear that come back to Katmai Park to gorge themselves on millions of salmon before, you know, the hard winter. And that just, so it gives you an idea of how much the fish, the fish feed the folks, all the, the, you know, the, the people that live there, they feed the animals, they feed, you know, again, right down to, like you said, it's the grasses and the trees and it, it's, it's all absolutely connected. And it's at a scale that you really did, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around the scale of how interwoven everything is. Um, we had, we had flown out one day in a small, it was a, um, a float plane and we flew, I don't know, it was about a 45 minute flight and we dropped into a remote pond and then hiked on the tundra up and over a ridge through a bunch of alders and stuff like that. And then down into a Canyon to fish a, a Creek, but walking on the tundra was, first of all, it's really spongy. So, you know, when you think of tundra, you think frozen tundra, right? It's just wind whistling and cold and everything's sort of brittle and hard and jagged. And it's, it's actually, it's, it was beautifully lush when we were there, you know, the ground was soft. There's, you know, there's lichens and sort of moss and other small plants and things like that. And it's, it's a really uneven surface. A lot of that has to do with the permafrost has been, been essentially thawing, which, and that's, you know, because of the rising temperature of the planet and what have you with climate change. And so it's causing, there are spots that, it, that heave and other spots that sink. So the, you know, the ground, there's, there's a lot, it's very uneven terrain, you know, when you're, when you're walking through, but it's amazing to see, you know, the old boulders and the, just the, the, the flowers that exist in like a thumbnails worth of soil, just, it's, it's spectacular to, you know, to see just that, that ancient landscape, you know, but when we were flying in, you could see out over everything and the tundra just, it just goes on forever, but you can see where there was old ponds or old like glacial ponds that have since filled in like the, the, the tundra has sort of taken over. There'd be grasses and different things that creep in on the sides and eventually just take over that whole lake and it just becomes more like a bog kind of like they i mean they there's places like that in the adirondacks there's a lot of lakes that are surrounded by bogs as well and it's you know it's i had that in my head when i was i was looking at all these um from up above but you can see just just how many thousands of years there's a whole story that's just unfolding below you. You can see what used to be there. We saw, you know, a, a sow and her cub walking across and they were heading, it looked like they were heading to another pond, but in the middle of nowhere. And there's these two brown bear and they look so just profound. We're, you know, we're pretty well up in the air and there's just this perfect 
bear shape and the cub just walking across the tundra this beautiful green and gold of the tundra and there's this this you know dark figure lumbering along and um rivers that rivers that are snaking through in different spots and mountains off in the distance and it it's 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 just a profound uh, profound sight was that bear even acknowledging you no. Doesn't even no, know we were, what you, you were. Yeah, like they, an airplane and just whatever, well, man. And there's 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 small ones and I mean they the bear like when we were in the river, they would pay attention to us. You know, we used to people. A side a side glance. And I mean you you gotta figure on a non COVID summer there are like millions of people that come through there. Okay. Right. There's just there's a that's like one of the destinations in Alaska that there are tours just to go see the bears period. So for us to be there, there was only one other fishing party on the river while we were there. So there was only four other people aside from Cam and Justin and I in the river fishing. And that to me was, you know, it was, it was pretty damn cool to have almost the whole place to ourselves and it's very, again, it's very rare, but f- for us, it, it was kind of nice because the bear, y- there's not the risk of some, you know, idiot who's wants to get close and no, oh, I'm going to take a picture. I'm going to see how close I can get or whatever, you know, pushing the boundaries. It's just, we respected them. We might, they might've looked over or stopped, picked their head up or something like that. But generally they just did they did what they were going to do. And, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to witness, witness nature like that in, you know, you're on their turf and even at 50 yards, I can't move. I can't move in, you know, knee deep river that quickly (laughs) to to be able to turn and burn. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing to be there and see them on their terms. And the fish, what is it like casting to something that is in such a pristine, clean environment so far away from absolutely everything? Well, what I found interesting was, well, there was a few different, a few different places that we fished. So the situations were different, you know, there, you know, when we were at Brooks, there's just all you see is, I mean, just sockeye everywhere and they're pre-spawned. So they're all red, green heads. They have, they're not up on their beds and, and in their areas yet. They're get, they're pushing up there and we're really just ignoring them because they're not eating. And, and the only way you're really going to catch them is if you floss them, you know, and for me, I would have loved to have held one, but I, I would, I would, I I just wanted to catch fish that were biting, you know, and I could see them in the river and I don't need to disturb them at the end of the day. So, so getting past that, there's all these fish just all around you. And we were just trying to pick rainbow trout that were in and among them that were just sitting and staged and, and waiting that had pushed up from the lake. And so we would skate mouse patterns or you know I, I i just fished streamers and mouse patterns for them i didn't even bother fishing eggs or beads 
just because I, I, you know, we, we did, we caught some in, in other places, but on this particular day, it was, I just wanted to pull a couple of streamers, just little, you know, little goby patterns or what have you. And, and mouse mice patterns too. So they come up and just grab it off the surface, but it's, it was awesome because we would fish together. And so when I can't, I can't necessarily see where a fish was holding down below me, but the guy did talk me into it. And then Cam and Justin would be like, Oh, he's moving, he's moving. And all of a sudden they're, you know, he's grabbing it or there's spots where you can see him and they chase it 25 feet before they, you know, they grab it or nose down on it right on the bottom and take it like a tailing bonefish or something. It's, it's just, it's very, very cool. Uh, and it was there when we fished for pike that was you know it was all flat water and we would spot them in some instances spot them way ahead and and just you know chuck long cast and stripping streamers and we didn't we the last thing we expected was to catch pike when we went to alaska because it was never on it was never on my radar it was we're going to go up, we're going to be able to see sockeye and all this and maybe some, some Dolly Varden and Grayling and so on and so forth. And so to catch pike, that was just, that was like, check the bonus box. You know, how and big were these? Cam, pike? He got, like there were some, 40. there were some big ones. There was some, yeah, there were some really big tor- torpedoes. We, the ones that we caught were, they were all probably around 30 inches Sorry. thereabouts really really pretty fish you know it as aggressive as you expect pike to be the obviously the big difference is just you know when you're looking up from the water the landscape around you is a lot different than where we find pike back east so but so we that was that the diversity with you know going after them to begin with was was really nice and then we got into some pink salmon just in the main river we saw a lot of big, really big kings. I mean, like big, like 40 pound, bright red, just gigantic fish that were, they're just holding, waiting to, you know, push up further to get to their spawning area. When we flew out, we fished for, for Dolly Varden, which when I had gone. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com To Juno before, we only caught Dolly Varden that were they might have been 10 inches at best and they were just gorgeous fish it reminded me a lot of brook trout just you know the dark sides and bright bright colors and and the white on the you know the pectoral fins and things like that but we fished for them and I'm, i i got a couple that were from they're about 20 inches 20 like 20 22 inches just beautiful big these amazing looking fish and they fight like a son of a gun and so we caught a bunch of those we caught some rainbows in that river too but then and this is this story is going to be the story that i tell 
for the rest of my days, we had fished the river down to where we were going to take out uh, or actually climb out and then hike back up over the ridge and go back to the pond where the plane was going to get us. But we were about 40 minutes early. And Kate, she says, hey, let's just fish down around the bend a little bit. And then we, so we weren't going to go that far. Well, I get down around the bend and I notice this, it's fast water, but it's really glassy and there's grayling rising and grabbing, there's probably eight of them or more working in this one hole and grabbing flies off the surface. So we rigged up one dry fly rod and then we played baseball and it was three, you get three casts if you don't get a fish or you don't get a rise, then you hand the rod off to the next. So I didn't get a fish on the first run. I gave it to Cam. Cam casted. Boom, catches one right off the bat. One rise. You can see him from wherever. You can watch him come up and, and snatch it. So he gets one on his his turn. And it was just high fives, outstanding, all this. You get a couple of pictures real quick and put them back. Just be, and I'd never... I'd never seen grayling before, and they're just, you can almost mistake them for sort of a bland-looking fish. If you if you look at them just in general, they're just kind of gray. They do have that great dorsal fin, but when you really take a look at them, they almost have this, there's a turquoise that's in, in and amongst their scales and stuff that when in certain light, it just... It just lights right up. It's it's beautiful. So so Cam catches one. I get one on the next one. And Cam's like, man, two out of the same hole. That's pretty cool. I, I, I bet you we don't get three, though. And I give the rod to him. Doesn't he catch another one? He's like, there's no way we're going to get four. Don't I get another one? We caught eight grayling. <laughs> between the two of us we went four and four we got eight grayling out of that hole and wound up running out of time and had to leave to go catch our plane how many angles did you get through uh, oh geez well we got through let's see so it's eight nine i think we got through nine innings right yep. this, and everyone had to fish the same rod with the same fly yeah we well we had we had one break off so it was actually three different three different flies, and they got progressively smaller. So the last one was just this really small, like midge with an orange post on the top, and you could barely see it. So it was just like I know it dropped in that area roughly, and you're waiting for something to come up. But but yeah, we just we fished and caught grayling on dry flies until it was time to go, and. To be able to, to be able to do that with, with Cam, was really special because, he's, I he's learned how to fish, up, in New York, fishing for bass or fishing you know the tributaries for you know drifting beads or different things like that, and it's there's not a whole lot of casting involved with a lot of our tributary fishing. It's roll casting, right? You don't get necessarily you're not lifting aerializing the whole line and and making these traditional fly casts so to have a dry fly rod rigged in his hand and he's making these casts and there's a there's a, a, a good wind that's on the river 
and he's just doing his own thing and he's making casts however he can and and catching fish it it was so awesome to be able to just go back and forth with him and to finish in a tie I would have absolutely I would have been gracious if he did catch one more I would say he caught one more but we tied that's just that's going to be something that you know we'll talk about for a long time so did you find that the mouth on them is pretty funny looking really difficult to yeah. catch yeah it's actually it's it was interesting that they they actually rise and they eat off the surface because their mouth is is not completely inferior but definitely um more so than you know like rainbow or anything else so to get them when they come up they're just they're very aggressive they come up and it's a, it's always a splashy take we did we weren't seeing any that that were you know coming up and sipping anything off the surface so and you know they they set the hook on themselves which is as dry fly fishing should go right you drift it they if they take it and they turn and that's when they set it instead of having to like really do much with your rod you just keep that nice constant tension and they turn into it and that's was pretty much what it was along with a whole lot of line mate you know maintaining your amending your line and all that good stuff and trying to play the fade on the wind but which of the fish did you choose to bring home oh the last day last morning cam decided to sleep in and i went out for a few hours with one of the guides and we went specifically after silvers i got i got caught four that morning and decided i kept three and we got them all filleted and um vacuum sealed frozen and then I, I bought a backpack specifically to, to carry the fish with me on the plane <laughs> and all frozen and got them home. So how does Alaskan salmon compare to mud sharks from the salmon river? <laughs> there's, there's, there is no comparison. I mean, if you get them out of the lake, excuse me, get them out of the lake when they're fresh, salmon are, salmon are, you know, really good within a certain, a certain size out of Lake Ontario, but the, the quality of the meat, just how the, the three that I kept were all, they were bucks and just the quality of the meat, the density of, you know, just the, like the muscle is amazing. The color too. <clears throat> the, the color is, is, is just pure that, that beautiful orange and, it's it, it's just it's very 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 tender and yeah you just i don't know you, you when you look at it you we see it in the grocery store and stuff and you kind of <clears throat> you see orange you know and they say oh it's fresh salmon most of it farmed yeah when i worked at the fda years ago center for food safety and applied nutrition i read a lot of documents about what those pellets do to mice when you feed it to them to test oh, yeah. them yeah it kills them the pellets that make the salmon turn colors is not good on rodents yeah <laughs> yeah I, I i don't tend to try to ingest too much of that either it can't be too good for humans and any big quantity either but but they're just they're, everything about the the meat is just is just fantastic and the taste 
delicious as well. It was really good. We had a we had a hell of a salmon bake after I got back. Do you have an Alaska hangover when you returned? Oh, for sure. You know, we when we were there, we were there in August, and it they did see nightfall, but it doesn't come till eleven thirty, eleven forty five, before it gets like really dark. Earlier in the summer, obviously, when there's the sun never dips below the horizon, it drops, but it stays it stays above the tree line. There's there is some things to get used to, you know, when you're you get done with dinner and you still have like there's a lot of daylight left and it's nine o'clock and, you know, you're like, all right, I, I just need to close the curtains and go to bed because if I if I don't pay attention and I just stay up till it's dark thinking, oh, that's my cue. Yeah, I'm going to be going to be whooped tomorrow. But. But getting back after being in such a big, such a big place, there is a there is a hangover. There is reentry is reentry is a bit tough. The, I, the the nice part is having having a lot of pictures that we took, you know, and being able to look back through them and and tell stories and and all that good stuff. But but yeah, it was tough tough to get back in the saddle with work. <laughs> Does it make you just feel small and question sort of your, your position on the planet seeing 45 miles away unimpeded and then come back, come back and you're like, man, there's traffic and garbage and people. Yeah. Well, I've, I've always known that, you know, I've, I've said, I eventually I'd love to live out West and, and what have you. And, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens, but I also, it, it does help me pay attention more to what is, what is still undisturbed and what's still sort of pristine around here, you know, and it, it helps me that perspective. It just helps me value where I am and where I'm from that much more because we do have a lot of just beautiful places back up around here and and it makes me just want to pay attention more and want to be a better advocate you know and i'm i will always be an advocate for the environment it doesn't matter where in the country it is but to be able to experience some of some of the issues like you know with pebble mine or with the boundary waters up uh, the mine that they're proposing to put in up there these these places are they're they're no less special than any of our own in our own backyard you know and i think we have to sort of look at it with that perspective we do have access to these you know these amazing places like alaska and and out montana and wyoming and so on and so forth but we do we've got amazing amazing places right in our backyard and we couldn't imagine something happening like say pebble mine in the finger lakes region right yet that it just would not fly so why does it fly just because it's remote we you know we have to we we have to make sure that we we do take a stand to protect places like that because those are some of the last 
big places that we, you know, big wild places that we have, but they're also, that is somebody else's backyard. And we'd, I'd like to think that if something was going to happen, you know, in the Finger Lakes that was drawing national attention, even larger global attention, even that, that people from Alaska or from California or Arizona or wherever, they would take notice and they would want to, you know, help fight and preserve these, these beautiful glacially formed lakes that are the Finger Lakes, you know. I think that's, that's our responsibility is people who enjoy the outdoors is to be, to be good stewards and to be good stewards with others as well, you know, and to, uh, to stand up and, and be counted in your own backyard and in other people's. Any suggestions on how people can do that? Can they go through AFTA? We, we most certainly, we've, we, we work primarily with partners, right? So we do work with Trout Unlimited. We work with uh, Bristol Bay Defense Fund, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. There's a lot of organizations that we work with that are doing fantastic work rallying a lot of troops. Because of the fact that we are, we are a trade organization, a lot of our focus is on how do we get our members, that is manufacturers, uh, fly shops, retailers, you know, guides, outfitters, lodges, media folks, how do we get them, they're already active primarily and they're, they're big stewards of the land because they need to, that's, that's the, that's their livelihood, right? It's if, if we don't have clean water, if we don't have public access, if, if the land and habitat goes away, if the oceans get, you know, too acidic or the migratory patterns of fish change so much that, you know, we're suddenly fishing for tropical species off of Long Island, it's, we are the ones that are on the front line and, and working to sit, to keep our livelihoods intact. We try to help them by bringing as much firsthand information to them to be able to relate to their customers, right? Whether it's a fly shop and they're bringing attention about Bristol Bay because they've got a couple of guys that fish, you know, or that, that, that guide up uh, in Alaska during the summer and then they're back down and, you know, Colorado or Oregon or wherever uh, for steelhead or for, for trout in the, the alternating season. We try to empower them and, and help uh, make sure that the industry awareness is strong so that that is further passed down to the customers um, and the people like BHA that, that they're reaching and Trout Unlimited and, and others. Um, so our focus is really on on the industry. But if you Trout Unlimited has got absolutely, you can, you know, go to their website. They've got a lot of, a lot of resources and ways that you can get involved, whether it's through social media or it's sending letters, petitions, different things like that. Um, they're a great, a great place to, to, to get involved. BHA is as well. United Tribes for Bristol Bay. They're a great um, organization that most definitely needs a lot of support. They are the, the essentially the association that, that represents all of the indigenous uh, tribes in the Bristol Bay region. And they're a fantastic source for information. 
as far as Bristol Bay is concerned, and for also getting involved. But just in general, there's there are there are a lot of places that you can get get involved, even right in your backyard. You know, and it could be something as simple as anytime you go out and fish, make sure you you carry out some sort of trash, whatever you find. You know, it's the little things like that. Um, it's 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 leaving a smaller footprint than you know you made walking in or that then somebody else made walking in that's just a it's just an ethic that you know we we need to make sure our kids understand and we need to adopt more and more ourselves is just that that responsible use you know absolutely and someone taking their kids to a place like you do definitely shows them what needs to be protected where a kid yeah, sitting on their computer sure. all summer didn't get to see. And I know that there's, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm very, very fortunate to have been able to take my son there this summer and to have been, you know, been there back in 2013. And I know that there's a lot of people that, you know, they may never necessarily get to go to Alaska, let alone say get outside their state, you know, there's there's a lot of different realities but for people to understand that there is a bigger world you know like i wanted my son to know and he knows in general we you know we there there's the you know he's been out to long island and seen the ocean and different things he's been some you know different places but he i want i want the kids to have a bigger worldview and know that it's not just it's not just your immediate universe and that's all that matters. There is a bigger world out there that you can absolutely, you know, have a positive impact on and that you should be a part of because this is our planet, you know, and we, you should be out trying to experience as much of it as possible because it's going to change your perspective on at the end of the day, what, what your role and what your responsibility is. So fantastic. Let's wrap this up with some random questions. <laughs> All right. If you had a superhero's power to make you a better angler, which which power would you choose? Oh, to make me a better angler. Oh, I'd want to fly. Yeah. Yep, I'd want to fly because that that would allow me to get to more places that are harder to get to. Yes. Uh, when you're eating a hot dog, do you put ketchup or mustard on it? Ketchup. Really? Okay. Uh, yep. Favorite place to ski and what's some of your bucket list destinations? Let's see. Locally, we've got a mountain, Bristol Mountain. I like skiing there. Considering we're, you know, in upstate New York, we 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 don't have a ton of ton of ski places available. So I like I like our our little home mountain quite a bit i think i'd like to get out to i'd like to get out to british columbia and get out that way to ski do you know try to do some some back country i'm a long i'm a long way from uh being i guess uh prepared enough to ski back country that big but i would i would absolutely love to i telemark so i it's sort of like fly fishing to conventional, you know, to recreational fishing, sort of like bow hunting with hunting in general. I, I just try to, 
I don't know. I like making more turns heading down the mountain, making more of the mountain. So, Do you have any irrational phobias? Oh, man. I have, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's not vertigo. I don't think, but it's like, I have a phobia about standing near edges, like anything that's over like 10 or 12 feet. I just get like, if I get too close to an edge, like I just feel pulled off. Like I'm just going to fall and I can't stop myself. Crikey. That made a, that, that, that was a fantastic one when I visited the Grand Canyon, let me tell you. What about the <laughs> the little bush plane and you're looking out? Oh, that I'm fine with. Were you just I'm, glued to I'm the windows with. flying in? Yeah, pretty much. That's Even on the commercial flights, it was like that. So yeah, I hate flying into an awesome place in the dark. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the worst. Yeah. Uh, is there anything in the world of fishing or fly fishing you consider blasphemous? Jeez, I guess I would say, I guess I would say just being, being a, I don't know, like not having common courtesy for those around you, yeah, like could... like terrible etiquette. The ability or not having the ability to actually communicate with someone to be able to fish with them or near them somehow that is equally, you know, mutually beneficial. Where can you find the best sandwich in the Finger Lakes area? Uh, I'm going to have to say Casa Italiana on Parish Street in Canandaigua. What are you going to get when you go there? Chicken parm meatball. Uh, I get nope. I get I get uh, smoked turkey, lettuce, mayo, cheddar cheese, their Italian dressing, and banana peppers. Very nice. On a sub, on a sub roll. Have you ever had an encounter with a ghost? Oh yeah, yeah. That that I I probably could fill a another podcast episode wow uh, what the strangest thing you found while fishing strangest thing i found i you know what i don't i don't i'm not sure aside from trash i did find a a pretty cool old like straw straw hat it was half buried in the mud i grabbed that cleaned it off and Fished with that for a bunch of years. Solid find. Yeah. Any listeners, if you're missing a straw hat from the mud, you know where to <laughs> find that. And uh, what's the best concert you've ever been to? Uh, I'd say it would have to be 20th birthday when I was stationed over in Germany. The Beastie Boys opened for Public Enemy what? In, the, in the town I was stationed in. That's and like eighty nine, ninety. Hang with, yeah. Uh, this was no. This was ninety, ninety one or ninety two. Okay. And I got to hang out with Ad Rock and their keyboardist before the show. All right, what's a fishing story you had to have been there to have believed? Jeez, this is this a good one? I guess probably. I think that that probably that grayling story 
I'm kind of spacing on other. Yeah, I'm spacing on other other possibilities. I'd say that eight eight grayling out of the same hole on dry flies. That's pretty damn cool. All right, what do you got planned for this fall? You doing trick or treating? Uh, no, my kids are they're all above and beyond that in age now, and I don't know what COVID is going to do in our neighborhoods anyway. But I am going to be getting ready for the Browns and still had to be pushing into the tributaries and I'm going to get back in the woods for whitetail season as well for archery. Cool. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for taking time out of this evening on an early fall night. I appreciate, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I'm glad we got to learn a little bit more about Alaska. It's on my list. <laughs> right on. All right, man. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.